Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Let's look at our text together. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under the guardians and the managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary things of this world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, and that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature were no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak, worthless, elementary things, which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I feel for you that that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Let's begin with really the preparation for the sonship. Look back in verse 1 just for a moment. Notice that word child. Naples. Child is one who cannot speak. Refers to an infant, a child, or a baby without any definite limitation of age. You know that same word is used in Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 3, where it says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Here Paul speaking to the body of Christ, those that were immature, those who have not grown, they're infants. They weren't spiritual. They were men and women of the flesh, driven by their emotions and feelings, and he speaks to them as an infant. See, God wants you and me to grow and mature. He wants us to be teachable and open. While we are to come like a child, innocent and teachable, those that are in Corinthians there, they had not grown. Now let me read Matthew 18.3. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever then humbles himself as a child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one of these, such child in my name, receives me. So a child can be good or it can be negative. Negative if we don't grow and we don't mature. But if we're a child in a positive sense, we're innocent, teachable, and we will grow. And that's God's desire to grow. But how do we grow? 
Well, I think one of the first examples, first of conversion, but really that mark for you and I to grow and mature, because this is what Paul is really talking about, maturity in our text in many ways. Look with me in Genesis 15, 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. Now this refers to Abraham. Abraham simply believed God. It was credit to him as righteousness. See, he was like a child. He believed, and he trusted. Now the means for salvation has been provided. It is simply waiting to be appropriated by faith. That's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, saving faith is seen in a person who adheres to, trusts in, relies upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and no works alone. Look with me at Matthew 7, verse 21. It's up on the screen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew them. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. A couple things I want to point out. First of all, Jesus did not have a relationship with them. Notice, he says he did not even know them. Two, they trusted in what they did. They trusted the fact they prophesied. They cast out demons. They performed miracles. These are what the Bible will talk about. False signs and wonders. And oftentimes people sadly chase after these false signs and wonders. See, a person who is saved believes in Jesus Christ alone. And there's something different about him. He then begins to grow and become like Christ. But the contrast of that is seen in Second Timothy Chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, notice on the screen. Notice they're holding a form of godliness. Outwardly, they, they look godly. Although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. From among them are those who enter into households, captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, laid upon various impulses. Notice they're not really what they seem. They have that form of godliness. But they're living in hypocrisy. Well, again, look at our text again in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God in a relationship, but rather be known by God. How is it that you turn back to these weak, worthless, elementary principles and things? to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Well, look at Galatians 5.1. It says, It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm in Christ. Notice again, Christ wants to set us free from these things. Verse 3 in our text says, so also, while we were children, we're held in bondage under these elementary things of the world. And he's saying, 
we've been set free. But what are these elementary things? Well, first, the elements are the basic principles or what we would call the ABCs of the Jewish religion. In this case, it was the law. The elementary principles could also be applied to the ABCs of physical creation itself. The universe, such as the earth, the water, the air. It could also apply to the ABCs of spiritual creation, the teachings, again, of the spiritual beings, the cosmos, such as demons, angels, star deities. Now, there's two camps that a person will fall into. You'll either fall into the biblical worldview, where you'll see the world through the eyes of the Bible, as God says, or you'll fall into what's called the naturalistic view, worldview. That is formed by philosophy or random acts of nature. Evolution would be one of those examples, with no real purpose seen at all. Or simply a worldly wisdom or traditions of men. What does the Bible say, though, about these elementary principles? That's really what's important. Colossians, I think, makes it very clear how we're to deal with it. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. That's Colossians 2.8. And then in verse 10, it says, in him you have been made complete, and he's head over all the rule and authority. And then again in Colossians 2, verses 20 through 22. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why is it if you're living in this world, do you submit again to these decrees such as do not handle, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments that teaching have been. When we identify with Christ... He is our Savior. He's the one that will keep us. We are dying to these elementary principles. We're putting our trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone. And, and we're going to take a biblical view. That's the mature view. Hebrews takes it a little further in chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk, not solid food. Look down at our text in Galatians 4, verse 9 and 10. But now that you have come to, to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it you turn back again to this weak and worthless elementary things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You're observing days and months and seasons and years. So he leaves him with this question for a second. Now go back to verse 4, because what we want to see is this purchase of the sonship. It's there, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, God is redeemed us 
bought us back. We're no longer under these things. That was back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There was this promise, the promise of hope to come. And I, referring to God, will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, her seed, and he shall bruise you upon the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the first messianic promise. Genesis 12, 1 and 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse you, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. God's desire was to redeem man and make him part of the family through what we call adoption. Again, jump down to verse 6 in our text. We see that reality of, of sonship because your sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir through God. The proof of sonship is in the presence of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. Notice again, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. God gives us the Holy Spirit at conversion. We experience that intimacy with God. The relationship is indicated by our hearts crying, Abba, Father. We know that we have a relationship. We're no longer slaves, but a son. This is what he's trying to say. You are, you are a child of God. You are my son. You're placed in my family. You've been redeemed. And now you're an heir through God. We have the assurance and the peace. In Galatians chapter 5, we see the fruit of the Spirit. Again, this is produced as we submit to the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, and joy, and peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. These are the things that the Spirit is working in us as he brings us to maturity. And see in verse 8, jump down just for a second in text, that, that's what the Lord's wanting to do. He's appealing to mature as sons and daughters. So he says in verse 8, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to these things, which by nature are no gods. Now, he's speaking to the Gentiles here clearly. But now that you have come to know God, rather be known by God, how is it you turn back again to the weak, worthless, elementary things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Why was there appeal to maturity? Because there was a danger of turning back. Now, Galatians one six reminds us of that. When he began this epistle, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. See, there was the chance of apostasy. 
The people were beginning to drift and lean to the, the teachings of these false teachers. Paul's appealing specifically to the Galatian Gentiles. Look at verse 8 again. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which by nature are no gods. Well, what does that mean? In the past, they were enslaved to polytheism. They were worshiping many different gods. To go back was really to desert Christ. For the Jew, it was to go back. It means to trust in these elementary principles. And those were Again, those signs and icons and symbols, those things were shadows that pointed to Christ. It was interesting on Thursday, we did a teaching from 1 Samuel chapter 4, and it was when our symbols fail us. And so often, that's what we do. We trust in symbols. We trust in icons. Trust and rest in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Apart from any works of the law, there's nothing you can do that God will trust you or bless you anymore than if you just put your trust in Jesus Christ. Notice with me Second Timothy, Second Timothy, again, chapter 2, verse 13, it's up on the screen. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. A lot of people hang on to, oh yeah, see, I'm faithless and God's going to remain faithful. But you know, the real fact is, Dinsdale Young explains that God cannot be inconsistent with himself. It would be inconsistent with his character to treat the faithful one and the unfaithful alike. He is ever more true to righteousness, whatever we are. The word should not be interpreted to teach God's faithfulness will be demonstrated on upholding those who are unbelieving. Such is not the case. If men are unbelieving, he must be faithful in his own character and must treat them accordingly. He is just and faithful in his threatenings as he is in his promises. God will judge the unfaithful. So the question always becomes, are we truly saved or are, are we going through the moves? Are we what is called apostate? One who knew the truth but are going back to those old things, trusting in things other than Jesus Christ. So the second question is, are you really trusting? Am I trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? You know, it's in verse 10 and 11. We see the blessings and the curses of the sons and the daughters. Notice what he says. You observe days, months, seasons, and years. And I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. And now they're doing it, keeping the Jewish calendar. It was really evidence of the fact that they were reverting back to those old ways. Now, what would be gained by observing these special days, these months, these new moons that you might find in uh, Numbers 28, or the seasons, or the annual feasts, such as Tabernacles, Passover, and Pentecost, and years, such as Sabbath years, and years of Jubilee, thinking, if I keep them, then I would find favor with God. If you have trusted in God and God alone, you have perfect favor. 
Now, it's not wrong to keep these and then explain and use them in teaching, but if a person is trusting in them to find favor, they've missed the mark. Now, would God be impressed by the attention to the detail of the, the old law? Would they earn more of God's favor? Paul is saying, what are you doing? Burning incense and sprinkling holy water, lighting candles and fingering beads and repeating prayers over and over again. Paul is saying, you've gone right back into paganism, into ritualism. You've been set free from that stuff, he's saying. You can boldly go to the throne of grace and meet with God. There's something within us, though, that gravitates toward the law and rituals and legalism and, and all the stuff from which Christ came to set us free. See, when we're doing things, we feel like, wow, we've, we've accomplished something. It makes me feel good. Again, we've done something. Years ago, when I got a cut, I loved to use something called methylate. It stung bad on an open, broken skin. But I so assured myself it was doing good. After all, it stung. It must be doing something. And that's kind of like what we do with these works. I, I, I'm doing something. God's going to notice me. But one day I was reading on Amazon. One of the questions in answer section said this, that there, there were some questions about methylate. Well, the answer was it was, well, it's bright red. It stings because it's killing cooties. <laughs> Just like always, we think something must be happening. Sometimes, and more often than not, our emotions and our feelings, they deceive us, don't they? Well, Isaiah 29, 13 says this, Then the Lord said, because this people have drawn near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And the reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. It, it, you know, sometimes we're trusting in those traditions. There's not a reverence, he's saying. First Peter 1.18 and 19 says this, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from a futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but notice by the precious blood, as of the lamb of unblemished spot, the blood of Christ. So sadly, we can drift and miss the main point. Imagine this for a moment. You travel with me halfway across the country to Yellowstone National Park. And there we are, standing by the fence, waiting for old faithful to rupt as it does approximately every 90 minutes. But after about 30 minutes, you become bored and you see a goose <laughs> and you follow that into the woods. But I remain by the fence and see the spectacle of the old faithful geyser. You, on the other hand, missed out because you're on a wild goose chase. And finally, you say, this is dumb. I'm going back and I'm going to position myself right near Old Faithful again. Now, when Old Faithful sees you coming, it doesn't say, well, 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 look, who's finally decided to show up? There's no way I'll rub for you. No, you've been on a wild goose chase. No, Old Faithful 
erupts regular, faithfully, no matter what your position. The wild goose chase only distracts us from that loving relationship that God desires with you and he wants you to experience. God wants us just to enjoy him and him alone. Not in the rituals, not in traditions. He wants you. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you. It always tells us how much you love us and how much you want us and how much you did and what you did that we could be yours. Lord, thank you that we are yours. Not only are we a child of God, we are the bride of Christ. And we say today, Lord Jesus, come. Come now, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.